My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you in the house. We're going to continue our series on faith and weave in the principles of thanksgiving. And Pastor Jim has already primed the pump because the passage from which I will be speaking is the one he's already exhorted upon. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. We're going to read verses 12 through 19. The title of this message is Faith That Cleans. Faith That Cleans. Luke 17, verse 12. Speaking of Jesus, it says, As he entered a village, ten leprous men stood at a distance, who stood at a distance, met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Verse 14, and when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus, verse 17, answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Verse 19. And he said to him, Stand up and go, for your faith has made you well. Lord, help us as we study. Leprosy was a horrible disease. It was pretty much a death sentence. In the Old Testament, you had a couple of people who got healed from it, but those are the only ones we'd ever heard of. One was Miriam, the other was a man named Naaman who was not an Israelite. Miriam was the sister of Moses. She had a brother, as Moses did, named Aaron. Miriam and Aaron weren't too happy about the the woman that Moses married. She wasn't a Jewess. She was a Midianite woman, we believe, and they just didn't like the fact that Moses married outside of the family, if you will. Yet... Her father was a priest of Midian, and Midian happened to be a descendant of Abraham. And so there may have been some godliness associated with this man's family, meaning Jethro, who was Zipporah's daddy, and the family into which Moses married, and that God sent him from Egypt to a pastor's house, at least the finest pastor you could find in the wilderness to help prepare him for his ultimate calling of delivering the Israelites out of Egypt. Pretty cool. But they didn't like the fact that she wasn't Jewish. So they were upset. Miriam began running her mouth. Do, do you know that we've made a living out of gossip? I don't care how popular it gets. It's still wrong. TMZ. It's all about gossip. Twitter. Soon as somebody does something wrong, boy, it is plastered on there, isn't it? It's not like we're trying to, to, to help by covering somebody's mess up we want to Instagram it in a moment and then YouTube it and have a million people hit hit it it doesn't matter whether it destroys their life or not somebody's making a dollar on it we've made gossip and the exposure of people's sin a profitable business this woman went to Moses excuse me went to Aaron Moses brother and her brother and said ain't right you married that began talking about motives, talking about how he wasn't right with the Lord. And, and God 
did not take kindly to that. He told Miriam and Aaron to come out, and a cloud covered them. Moses came out of the, of the tabernacle, and it says when the cloud lifted, Miriam had leprosy. Moses and Aaron cried out because they knew it was a death sentence. Lord, heal her, please. He said, nope, not now. He said to Miriam and Aaron, do you know that I talk to you in dreams and visions? In dark shadows. Moses, that dude, I talked to him face to face. Why did you not fear in speaking evil of the man I put in charge of my people? You need to have the fear of God in how you refer to him, and you lost it. Therefore, you got this. It's just not good to gossip, y'all. It's just not good. I'm not saying this is going to come upon you every time you speak bad about leadership and the church or somebody else. I'm just saying you don't put yourself in a position to be blessed. Yeah. You ought to be careful what you say. God said, listen, I'm going to do something. Take her outside the camp for seven days, and then you can bring her back and be okay. Well, that meant within seven days God healed her because there was no way to incorporate a leper back into mainstream society without infecting other people. So she was brought back and healed. Naaman was a man who was an army commander for the Syrian army. And <clears throat> he was renowned in his brutalism, brutalic, brutalistic measures in hurting the Israelites and taking people captive. Long and short of it, Elisha healed him from leprosy. But those are the only two. You have to wait till you get to the New Testament to find anybody who's healed. And that, by the power of Almighty God, is expressed through Christ's ministry. And I want to talk about three things today. One, how your proximity ought to define your petition. Two, how the procedure will always be an on-ramp to your preservation. And three, what does praise and appreciation look like? First of all, your proximity and your petition. Jesus comes into the city. He was on his way down to Jerusalem, somewhere in between Galilee and Samaria. And he stops in the city. And he, these lepers see Christ come in, and he's already got a reputation. He's built some credibility with the populace. And they see him, and they realize this man heals folk. Folk who used to be dead aren't anymore. People who could not see do. People who could not hear can. People who could not speak are now blabbing all day long. He's amazing. I think if we do something in unison, he might just notice us. And so this, this group of lepers who has been quarantined over to the side cry out, Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us. The interesting thing is not so much that these guys cried out. What was the rest of the city doing? Jesus, the Son of God, had just come into their city. Why, would, why weren't they crying out? They may not have had leprosy that uniquely brought these ten people in touch with their mortality unlike any other moment. But they still had issues that needed to be resolved by proclaiming him as their Lord. What was the rest of the city doing? Why wasn't everybody crying out, have mercy on me? Proximity ought to define your petition. When God shows up in the house, there ought to be something you're crying out to him about. You do not want to go out the way you came in. This is not just an educational moment to make you smarter. It is a discipleship time to make you better. And we don't need to cry out just for that which we want. Oh, Lord, it's finals time. 
Lord, I need an A just to pass, so can, can you please help me? Now, probably nothing wrong with asking for that, but you got to ask yourself, why do you need an A just to pass? What were you doing in September? <laughs> what kind of prayer is this? There was a guy that came to one of my pastors and said, Pastor, I'm praying my girlfriend ain't pregnant. don't even know sometimes where to start with folk. How many things are wrong with that prayer? How many things? <laughs> I just, and so we pray about the stuff we think is most important, but we don't cry out to him about that which is most important. These men were in touch with their mortality and their mortality made them understand, I might have bills to pay, I might have a car, I might have an issue with my donkey who just broke his leg, but I'm telling you what, I know it's most important. I need to be healed from this disease. Now, leprosy is the Old Testament sickness that is most akin or probably superimposed as a shadow to our sin nature, the problem we have on the inside. Leprosy was a disease that would attack the central nervous system, it was incurable except by a miracle from God. And when someone contracted it, they were to go to the priest. Now, they usually did not know whether they had it, and so the priest was to diagnose whether it was just eczema or psoriasis. They wouldn't have that knowledge. Then, but nobody knew exactly what they had until the priest noticed what it was. And if he said it was leprosy, then they were to go outside the camp and remain there until the day of their death. Leprosy was that which attacked the central nervous system, and it began to... To, to make feeling go away starting at the extremities. So the nerve endings would just dissolve. And in that dissolution, you'd also have fingers that would just fall off. Noses, toes, eyeballs. Just you wake up one day if you're a leper and it's there. It was horrible, horrible. And there's something about sin that does the same, same kind of thing. Paul told Timothy that in the last days there are going to be some folk that, that do a lot of mocking and they adhere to doctrines of demons and they will lose their faith and they'll fall away and they will sear their conscience as with a branding iron. Now if you know anything about a really bad burn, you know that after it heals, scar tissue develops and you lose sensitivity in that area. You don't feel as well as you felt before in that same spot. The nerve endings have died. Well, that's what happens when we sin. When we continue to do the wrong thing, we sear our conscience as with a branding iron so that we don't feel guilt about what we've done anymore. So the first time you did something wrong, I mean, something really, really wrong, you knew it, you, you were conscious of doing it, and you, you had guilt. I mean, you felt bad about it. But then the second time, not so much. Third time, just a barely, just a blip on the, on the conscience radar screen, and then it went suppressed. And then after a minute, you just live that way. Well, what happened? You kept doing it over and over again, and your conscience became desensitized. And this is the disease that we all have. It came from Adam. The propensity to sin 
and try to get away from the consequences thereof and the bad feeling. And by the way, guilt is a marvelous thing. I know everybody wants to get rid of it, but it is a great indicator because it lets you know what was wrong. If you don't have guilt, then you have no way of of recognizing what not to do anymore and how to get rid of this feeling that's bad on the inside of you by repentance and asking for forgiveness. Guilt is great, great. Now, if you're suffering from guilt in wrong ways, meaning false guilt, guilt is wrongly applied to you because you are now taking the responsibility for somebody else's deeds, we need to fix that. But that's another issue. God has designed us to be people that feel something on the inside when we do something wrong. And if you don't feel really, really, really bad about what you've done, then something is wrong with who you are. Something's broken on the inside. And you've developed a spiritual leprosy. God wants to heal you of that. Which, as I'm superimposing our sinful life over the issue of leprosy, when he comes into your city, you need to cry out about that. Now, I know you need a new car. I realize you need a new job. I know you're trying to get married. I got all that stuff. But the thing that's most important you need to fix, you need to cry out to him on a regular basis. Make me clean. Deliver me from sin. Help me to be right. Let me live for you with all of my heart and integrity so I can honor you with my mouth, my life, my mind, and everything I've got in possession. That's what we need to cry out to him for. Why wasn't the rest of the city doing the same thing? They didn't recognize their need, though they had a deep, deep need. These brothers did. Proximity. When he's in your presence, don't miss it. Don't let him pass on by. If he's here today, cry out to him in your soul. Say, God, deliver me from my sin, please. Help me not to do what I did yesterday. Help me not to do or say or think what I'm... Lord, let me be different. Secondly, your your following of his procedures will be an on-ramp to your preservation. Now, he told him what? Go show yourself to the priest. That was pretty much the, the roadmap for the community and anybody who had leprosy. That once you, once you had leprosy, well, I'll say it this way. The priest diagnosed whether you had leprosy, but you were always, if you thought you had it, to go to him. Now, the priest couldn't do anything to heal you for the most part, unless God just did a miracle. But he was at least the diagnoser and the one who could quarantine anybody who had it to keep the rest of the population safe. Obviously, these people had not been, had not been to the priest. And so Jesus was sending them. Now, he knew what was going to happen on the way. But they didn't. Which makes it all the more... Amazing that a Samaritan would obey. Now, let, let, let me tell you something about a Samaritan. A Samaritan w- was a person that was a uh, kind of a, 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 a human genetic cross between the Assyrians who invaded the land in 712 B.C. and kicked out northern Israel, who was the, the northern kingdom. There were two kingdoms in Israel. Southern kingdom was Judah. Northern kingdom was Israel. And they dispersed the northern kingdom to the four corners of the world. And they brought the Assyrians, their own people, down and populated the area. And they intermingled with the poor folks that the Assyrians did not want to take into their own land. And, and that, those people became the Samaritans. As evidenced by the fact that when Jesus went 
in John chapter 4 to a well in Samaria. There was a Samaritan woman there, and they had a conversation. And the Samaritan woman reflected that she thought her heritage began with Jacob, though she was partly Assyrian. But she reached back to a Jewish part of her heritage. So they had kind of a, a synchronistic cause, what's the right word? A, a, a mixture of religion in their background. And so the Jews thought, not only are they not fully Jewish, but they are messed up in the religious practice. They are unclean even when they are clean. In other words, even when they're not declared having leprosy, they are unclean people. The rule was if somebody gave you something that was prepared on a Samaritan plate, you were to throw it away and break the plate. That's how much the Jews did not like the Samaritans. So Jesus says this to all ten of these lepers, go show yourself to the priests. And the Samaritans saying, what for? What, 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 what good? What good I, I don't know nothing about that church. And they don't even like me. Even if I get clean, they're going to call me unclean. Why do I need to? Yet he, he did what Jesus said. There is so much that we need to do even though we don't understand why. You just need to obey. You need to obey. Because the procedure that he prescribes is your on-ramp to your preservation. If that Samaritan had sat there and said, that ain't going to help me a bit. They don't even like me over there. They aren't my people's priests. I'm not going there. He would have stayed in his sin. Stayed in his condition and died. Following what Jesus says helps you and it proves how much you care about him. You ask people whether they love God. And generally, most folk who have any inkling towards spiritual things will say yes. And they'll, they'll pretty much reflect on their affection, their emotional attachment to the man upstairs. The existential feeling they have when they experience spiritual realities outside of the natural. And whoo, the goosey bumps. None of which indicate anything good is going on. The only way Jesus said you can prove how much you love him is if you obey. That's it. John 14 verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I say. You'll obey my commandments. It has nothing to do with feelings. Feelings are things that God gives to accentuate the obedience process so that we can enjoy that which he's called us to do. But we do not make our decisions based on how we feel. Because if we make our decisions based on how we feel, we'll wind up in a spot always judging, always trying to figure out how in the world we can do what we need to do because we're not feeling what we need to feel anymore. I'll say it like this. You should never base anything you do that's important, maybe not even minor, on how you feel because how you feel is always based on how you feel. And what if you're not feeling right in here? You go out and you have a turkey bowl. Gentlemen, you go play football, you stay out there in the cold of 25 degrees for two hours, harking back to a time, harkening back to a time when you thought you could play. And your body is not telling you you can't, reminding you you can't. And you come back inside, it's time to eat. And, and what do you do? 
you wash your hands. And what, what does the water feel like when you put your hands under that faucet? Cold water is hot. Why? Because your hands are so cold. The internal temperature of your extremities has dipped so low that even cold things feel hot to you. So there's something on the inside that is not allowing you to rightly judge the external stimulus as you should. So how you are feeling in your hands, on your hands, is based on how your hands feel. Why in the world do you want to make a decision like who you marry based on how you feel? The most important decision other than giving your life to Christ, you do not want to base on how you feel. You want to base it on the will of Almighty God. And as I said before, that's why you never want to fall in love. Don't do that. Grow in love. You don't want to fall. Since when is falling ever good except when you do it in love? When? Nobody likes to fall. Because when you fall, you got to what? And when you get married, you get back up. When you get married, you get back up. You come to your senses. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you wake up thinking, what have I done? Who is this person? All because you were feeling it. But now you're not feeling it no more. And after a while of not feeling it, you make a new decision. Because you're not feeling it. And you're making decisions based on how you feel because your internal temperature ain't feeling the external stimulus properly. That's why you need to know your Bible, understand what the will of God is, and do it. And let the feelings come afterwards to accentuate your obedience and confirm what God is doing. I don't care how you feel about God. doesn't matter. Do you obey him? Do you obey him? That's how you prove you love him. He just said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's how you prove you love him. We, we find ourselves in a position where we're always judging things outside of what scripture has to say about whether something is right. And, and we don't use the, the parameters and the guidelines that God has already prescribed. We don't follow the procedure and we don't get the preservation we're looking for. We don't get saved out of our circumstances. We don't feel that God is helping us. We don't sense his deliverance in the moment. Why? Because we are not following the procedure. Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. Made no sense to the Samaritan. Yet he obeyed. And in his obedience, what happened? God healed him. Whoo, that was a moment. And I imagine there was this happy moment for all of them. We don't know their names, but Abinadab. You got fingers again, dude. That's cool. It's amazing. And they were probably hollering and screaming. Ears were coming back on heads that weren't there. It was a moment. And they were all rejoicing and hugging one another. But some sense of responsibility dropped into the Samaritan's head and says, wait, 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 wait. I I can't. He, he did. He did. He did. And it says he turned. When you understand what God has done for you. When you understand the sacrifice he has made for you, when you understand how much he loved you by sending his son for your benefit and spilling his son's blood on the cross, when you understand the sacrifice that was given, there ought to be something in you that turns from whatever you're doing and says, I want to follow. 
He turned, said he turned back. And that's nothing more than repentance. Lord, I don't want to live this way anymore. I choose to live for you with all of my heart. That's what that is. He turned back. And repentance is absolutely critical to your progress in God. People have confused repentance with forgiveness for a long time. And they think they're synonyms when they are not. Inexorably bound, yes, but not the same. Repentance is simply turning from that which you used to be, what you used to do, how you used to think, how you used to talk, and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Making a 180 and going this direction now. As a result of that, you are then put in a position to receive the forgiveness that God wants to give you. This is why Jesus said in Luke 24, go into all the world and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance comes before you ask for forgiveness. And this, this is the remedy to you asking for forgiveness for the same thing every weekend. You've been asking for forgiveness for that thing every weekend for 10 years. Lord, forgive me for that. Lord, forgive me for that. Lord, forgive me for that. Get out of the revolving door. Get out of the revolving door. And start living the life of victory that God wants you to live. Now, perfection, I don't know anybody who's attained it, but I'm working at it. I'm working at it. I'm not talking about perfection in terms of a life that's complete. I've already shown that I've blown it. But tomorrow, my goal is to be more obedient than I was today. I'm trying to figure out how in the world to do things, not in a minimalistic way, but to glorify my Father who is in heaven and to bring a smile to his face on a regular basis. That's the way we all ought to be. I'm out of the revolving door. And I have turned my life over to him, and he has blessed me with the ability to do right. Hmm. Adam messed us all up in that when we are born, we are born with a tendency to go the wrong way. You are not a sinner because you sin. You are a sinner because you were born that way, and you sin because you are a sinner. Adam could only produce what he was. Apples produced apples. Peaches produced peaches. Sinners produce sinners. He blew it, and that's what he's been doing ever since, creating people that were just like him, as evidenced by the fact that you're, you, you never have to teach your two-year-old to be selfish. Anybody? Hey, you, we're going to have a selfishness class today. Where do they get that from? Where do they get it from? If they aren't taught it, where do they get it from? It comes natural. They got it from Adam. Through you. We do have to teach him to be sharing and loving and kind. So we are sinners when we're born because we got this messed up genetic DNA, this spiritual stuff that's working on the inside of us that bent toward the wrong thing. But God comes and he makes us new creations that allows us in to have a different bent. So now we want to do right. Blessed are he. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, Matthew 5, after righteousness, for they will what? Be filled. What does that mean? If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you'll have the ability to do it. Meaning, if you hunger and thirst after doing the right thing, you'll have the ability to do the right thing. The reason people do what they do is because they hunger for it. So if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you'll do that. If you hunger and thirst after immorality, you're going to do that. If you hunger and thirst after money, greed, you're going to do that. You'll you'll probably do some other stuff to get it that's wrong too. You're going to do whatever you hunger for. And what you need to do is allow God to come in and change your taste buds. Give you a brand new palate. How many of y'all enjoy broccoli at five? Raise your hand. 
you weird people. There's four of them. Four of them. Enjoyed broccoli at five. All the, all the other 500 of y'all hated it. But now you go to Sweetwater and you pay somebody to bring it to you. What happened? Your palate changed. God can change your palate to where you love doing righteousness. But you've got to surrender your life to him and start living right. Lastly, boy, he turned back and it says he began to glorify God. This is where, where praise and appreciation comes in. Glorify God. And remember, remember, this ought to convict all of us who are most reserved in our response to God of praise. This Samaritan had never been to church. He didn't know the proper response. He had not been trained by the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Methodists, or the Pentecostals, Kojic, or holiness. He didn't have a culture. He just did what, what his soul inspired him to do. He said, I got to go back. And he was shouting and hollering and screaming, just glorifying God with a loud voice. And it must have been, listen to me, it must have been so loud that when he got to Jesus, because the recorder, Luke, when he got to Jesus, you could hear him coming. That's why everybody knew he was doing it with a loud voice. And then when he got there, he could not get low enough. He kneeled at his feet and then put his face in the dirt, fell down at him, and said, thank you. Thank you. In this holiday season, may we have some face-planting moments where we just can't get low enough for all that he has done for us. We just can't get low enough. Lord, you're amazing. And we praise him not in the prescribed way of our culture. We just do it out of that which bursts from our soul. Only the people who have been convicted of serious crimes appreciate pardons. They're behind bars. And if the governor, as he's leaving the state for the last time, signs a last decree that says, I pardon thee, so-and-so, there's a shout. Only the people who don't feel they need anything to be pardoned from don't shout. Now, I don't know anybody in this room who doesn't need a pardon. I don't know anybody who doesn't need a pardon. And you've been given one. And the proper response in thanksgiving is to get as low as you can and glorify him and honor him. All of this, all of this, Jesus said, your faith has made you well. Now, he wasn't saying that somehow faith was some kind of magic bullet that fixed everything. He was saying your faith was the conduit that brought you to this moment because you didn't even think that it was important to go to the priest. But you did it because I said so. And look what God, look, look what I did. Look what God did. Secondly, he came back and he was healed not just in body, but something happened in his soul where worship was for the first time in his life coming out of him. That's why Jesus was able to say, you have the kind of faith that makes you whole, not just in body, but in life. God's given us the privilege of accessing all the benefits of his cross by faith. 
Let's do so and let the response be that which thanks him profusely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. There is nobody like you. Continue to help us to be the kind of people who can give you thanks regularly.